You are listening to a podcast from Australia's best-known community radio station, 3RRR, 102.7 in Melbourne. Good morning, radiotherapists. It's time to prepare for your latest dose of radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Doolittle, and you are listening to 3RRR. On today's show, we've got a little bit of everything. First up, we have a special guest, Phil Grano. Phil is the solicitor for the Office of the Public Advocate and he has a long and distinguished career as an advocate for people with disabilities. He's also an expert in all aspects of the law related to the rights of consumers in our health sector. He's in to tell us about the new, get this, Medical Treatment Act. Did you know we had one? Well, we do. And there's a new one that comes into effect in a few weeks. As well as Phil, we have our regular panellists, Dr Trainer Wheels, the panel beater and Capri, all here to update us on the latest news and views. They're taking a look at whether the US could reduce gun shootings through mental health initiatives, plus smartphones for school kids, and finally, the computer crash that stopped about 1,200 doctors from completing their physician's exams. So, get a cuppa, light your pipe, if you still smoke a pipe, sit in your most comfortable chair, sedate the kids, and prepare for your dose of radiotherapy administered orally, orally, or as a suppository. It's your choice. But let's begin with the news. And we are back. How are you all, gang? Hey, uh, let's start with the panel. Down the end, Dr Capri. Hey there. How are you? Well, yes, looking forward to our first show. This is our first show for the year because, you know, regular listeners will probably realise that we sort of rotate through four crews on radiotherapy and we mix and match as much as we can. But we, this is our first show for the year, so uh, it's nice to be back. It is indeed, and also as a team because we haven't sort of been together for oh, a while. Oh, I know, because there's always someone away. Talking of which, trainer wheels. Morning. What's going on in your life? Not a lot. <laughs> going to uni. Same old. Same yeah. old, same old. Yeah. I'm a tease. There is news, but we're not telling. Panel Vita. Morning, morning, do little morning, everyone. Good to see you back too, although you sort of come in every week. I'm in every week, but, it, you know, it's still fresh. It still feels like first show back with you guys. You're like, you you're like... That you're like the spine of radiotherapy. Oh, I don't. Ooh, and you're the, the nerve cells. You're the nerve, <laughs> nerve cells. You cell. keep us all together. The nervous cells. <laughs> nervous cells. I don't know about that. And Phil, g'day. G'day. Thank you for coming in. Thank you for inviting. Did me. I pronounce your surname right, Grano? Yeah, pretty right. Oh, because as I said it, I could, I could, I just got a glint out of the corner of my eye of a look of you got that wrong, you idiot. Because I get pretty much everything wrong, Phil. I should tell you up front. You should know. I'm the fool of the group. <laughs> I'm the class clown. I'm the one they're embarrassed to be seen with. But it is great that you've come in. Um, we're going to get to your interview in a minute. We're going to do a little bit of news, though, first, because that is the way we like to start. The biggest news, Dr. Trainer Wheels, will have been one that sent a shiver down, talking of spines, would have sent a shiver down your spine. Absolutely. Um, the crash in the exams. What happened? Tell, tell people about it. Just paint a picture. Yeah, sure. Okay, so you might have seen it in the news this week. There was a huge... F up, if I'm to be polite. Kerfuffle, I think Kerfuffle. is the technical Yeah, term. yeah absolutely. Um, with a very big doctor's exam. So it's the Royal Australian College of Physicians Basic Physicians Written Exam. I, I don't think that's its technical name, but that's what it is. Um, so doctors in training to become physicians and paediatricians of all different types have to sit this exam. Uh, around 1,200 doctors sat it, as you said, Doolittle, and it costs $800 just to sit the exam, not to mention thousands more in registration fees that... 
um, trainees and physicians pay every year. And um, the, the college's main role is to provide this exam for the basic physicians, trainees, which are also known as BPTs. So I'm going to call them BPTs from now on. So this year was the first time that they used a computer-based system for the exam um, and it was held in multiple locations around Australia and New Zealand and it's, it crashed past, partway through the exam nationwide and in New Zealand as well. Um, so the college cancelled the exam and rescheduled it. Now, that doesn't sound like a huge deal, but the exam is a really big deal for the doctors sitting it. They spend the better part of two years preparing for it, sometimes more. They postpone holidays, weddings, people plan their pregnancies around it. No joke, it's actually a, it's a really high-stakes exam. It causes a huge amount of stress for those sitting it. So for it to be cancelled partway through, last minute, and rescheduled for a couple of weeks later with a, not a lot of transparency about what happened and why, and also it's not clear whether candidates will be reimbursed yet, it's a huge problem, huge problem. So the RACP Facebook page is full of upset BPTs and physicians furious with the way it's been handled, particularly the inadequate and insincere apologies from the college, if I may say, um, and a lack of responsibility taken by the college as well, who took about $2 million in exam fees to run this exam. This just raises so many sort of issues. You know, when I first heard it too, you know, a bit like you, I guess. I so, you know, I initially sort of sat back and thought, you know, oh, hard enough. <laughs> you know, and then of course I I thought back to my days of doing the exam, and then of course I was absolutely horrified when I thought about it because you do you st- when you're preparing for these exams. So the way it sort of goes is you do medical school, you do a year or two as a junior doctor, or sometimes more, and then you enrol in specialty exams. And for three years you're a basic trainee, roughly, and for two years an advanced trainee. And this is the hurdle in the middle that turns you from basic to advanced. And if you don't get it, your whole life's on hold. Um, you know you can't you don't you can't buy a house because you don't know what your income's going to be, and you don't know where you're going to live or where you're going to train. You don't tend to get married because you don't know what your future. It's sort of like this gateway that you've got to get through and um, it, it really your whole life feels on hold and you study pretty hard and nearly everyone has a car crash at least once during the training program, during the exam period. You pretty much lose all your mates for about a year because you're largely just, especially, just the, especially the last year before in the last six months and then you plan the whole year around it because it's only, I think the written's are held twice a year in the clinic. Only once Is it for once the now? physicians. Yeah. Once in the clinic and so you, it's this pathway too because you do this and if you pass then you can do the clinicals. If you don't, you can't and etc etc so it really your whole year and it's you know as an outsider you sort of you know as an outsider you still might say harden up a little bit but when you're in them it's sort of like it's hard to explain how intense it feels. Well, I've got the, as I said, the Facebook page is full of thousands and thousands of comments of people really upset about it. And I've found one comment in particular, which I think really illustrated the point well. And I've got permission from the writer of the post to share it on radio. And oh, you're so use, proper. You're so proper. And to use her name. Um, I mean, she shared it publicly anyway, so I thought it'd be okay, but I just thought I'd check with her. So this is from someone called Elizabeth Hatzestavru. And she said, I'm a BPT who was affected by yesterday's exam. The RACP makes a point to say that they care about their trainees' mental health and well-being. Well, I put it to you that their actions speak louder than words, and your actions, or rather lack thereof, have shown us that in our time of need you have been nowhere to be found. This lack of care is evident in the statement above, which was the insincere apology I mentioned before, and communication we have thus far received. Trying to shift the blame and focus onto Pearson View, which is the company that held the computer-based software, is not acceptable. You are not taking any responsibility for your role in the events and in our training. 
The RACP's mission statement is striving for excellence in health and medical care through lifelong learning, quality performance and advocacy, and you have failed. You have failed to examine us fairly and you have failed to advocate for us. As candidates... um, This is quite long, but I think it does illustrate the point well, so I'll keep going if that's okay. As candidates, we have all adhered to the stringent rules the RACP has set for this exam and all have a personal stake in its fair delivery and outcome. Last year, I had a significant physical health problem and I put off emergent surgery until the day after the exam so that I could participate. I choose to do this because the exam is held only once a year with a strict and discompassionate special considerations policy. I followed all instructions to the letter and completed my examination in a haze of pain, medications, sleep deprivation and anxiety. During my rehabilitation, I learned that I had failed by one mark. I was devastated. However, I worked hard again all year to resit the exam under better circumstances. The examination circumstances the RACP provided me with yesterday were completely unacceptable. When you say you are disappointed by what happened, you are completely discounting the human cost involved. Can you imagine the impact this has had on my life? It's not just me, as you can see. Thousands thousands of trainees are affected by your actions. Thousands of stories just like mine, people with children, all of us with families, all of us trying to plan our lives around this high-stakes exam. As a fellow doctor and human being, I'm shocked and saddened by your lack of compassion. Today, we'll be going back to work, most of us having started new jobs in new roles, mentoring new interns just starting their career and caring for vulnerable patients. We will do this because we are caring, compassionate and hardworking people. There may be some of us who feel they are unable to continue to provide the high standard they expect of themselves under current circumstances. To you, I say, please take some time off and look after yourself. To everyone else, I ask, please be kind to your colleagues and friends. This may include stepping up and helping out because they are unable to safely return to work. Please reach out if you need help. Mm, makes it, it brings it home, I agree. I what do you think th- they should have done different, though? Well... Because, you know, I, I mean, I'm, I am sitting here, I agree, you know, I, I think that illustrates beautifully how traumatic it was for the 1,200 people. They're obviously going to change to a computer at some stage. What should they have done differently? Okay, so they didn't have a paper backup in right. the case of the system failing, which they said they would provide and they didn't. Mm-hmm. Some candidates were able to complete their exam but their results are going to be completely discounted. So what happens to those candidates who now fail the resit by one mark? There'll be good mark? reason for that, though, obviously. The, well, so they're saying it's for fairness sake. Yeah. They have to cancel the whole exam and everyone has to resit. But you can understand that some people find that frustrating if they feel that they did a good job and they did complete it. There were also problems with the way the exam was run. There was one story of a woman who was breastfeeding and asked for time to leave to express and was told she couldn't. So she had to sit the rest of the exam in pain. I heard a lot of these stories about just the actual exam venues were terrible. So it wasn't they just couldn't the... be found. People were yeah. told to wait in rooms and then they were forgotten about. Yeah. There was all sorts of muck The logistics up. of it were a joke as well. It wasn't it's just of, the computer system. It does raise for me, you know, I've seen in the last 20 or 30 years various systems in the hospital change to computers from you know, um, whatever, previous paper based. And it's a constant annoyance to me that people don't realise that the paper-based systems that they're replacing often developed over about 100 years or 200 years and they bring in the computer systems regularly unchecked and, you know, with all, you know, and they need to do some basic modelling whenever you, you know, I'm constantly saying you're not replacing any, you know, I want everything to be computerised. I can't wait. But I'm just, I'm constantly saying no, not until you've run the computer program and we see it in action and we run it parallel for a little while because in clinical practice it means, you know, this is an exam. In clinical practice it means patients 
get dropped off lists. It means appointments don't get done. It means tests don't get followed up. It means operations don't get booked. You know, we've got to get better at our transition. It's just terrible. Absolutely. And there's also this complication now that, you know, people are given exam leave to sit this exam once a year and now it's been rescheduled and hospitals have to now accommodate that they're going to be missing 1,200 doctors for another day. Yep, we have um, to, I know. And it's a I, rostering nightmare. Yeah, and it's probably worthwhile pointing out, I've been hearing a lot of this during the week, you know, and I'm, I know a lot of the um, physicians involved in the college and the college exams have been up to one and two every night in the last week, sending emails, providing support, redoing rosters, looking at leave, figuring out what's fair and what's not and trying to get the systems right. Consoling I didn't see the initial trainees. apology because I'm not involved with that college, so I didn't see the initial apology and so I'm not, you know, but I know they've been... I know there's been a lot of people putting a lot of effort into trying to right the wrong. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, not good. Hey, um, let's go into brighter things. As I mentioned before, we have Mr Phil Grano, OAM, no less, um, in with us. Phil is a lawyer, as I was saying, in the Office of the Public Advocate. Phil has spent a large part of his career in advocacy for people with disabilities and fighting for the rights of pretty much people with disabilities in every possible forum. He's worked tirelessly for the Law Institute of Victoria and for his efforts has been awarded an Order of Australia medal in recognition of his advocacy work. So basically I'm trying to tell you he's a big deal. And in a few weeks, (laughs) Victoria gets a new Medical Treatment Act. Now, whilst many clinicians only know vaguely about this act, it governs everything to do with consent and refusing medical treatment. It protects patients and guides clinicians. So we're going to hear a little bit about the new act. Phil, g'day again. G'day. Can you kick us off by telling us about the Office of the Public Advocate? Because, again, I don't think everyone's as familiar with it as maybe we should be. Well, there is a person called the Public Advocate, and her name is Colleen Pearce, Mm -hmm. and she has some responsibilities, and probably the most important one that your listeners would consider would be if someone has lost the ability to make decisions for themselves then they sometimes need someone to come in and make decisions for them. And that may be formalised by the appointment of a guardian. So that could be a family member, but if there's no family member, the public advocate is appointed that person's guardian. So they might be appointed to make decisions about where you live, um, with whom you live, health care, where you work, though that's fairly rare. So there are a variety of things. Who can visit you, who can contact you and access to services. So it's not just health stuff, it's pretty much everything for people who can't make decisions for themselves. Lifestyle issues. Yep. Yeah. How many people would have these sort of orders in place? Mm, Do you have a rough idea? I think it's nearly a thousand it may be less than that still that's a lot of people whose rights need protecting so i and i'm assuming the opa office of the public advocate is also responsible for lots of aspects of the medical treatment act what is your role with the medical treatment act is it where does it well again it fits into that thing i was telling you about is when people are unable to make decisions for themselves and they haven't got a medical treatment decision maker appointed then it is Uh, under this Act, the public advocate will be the person who will consent or refuse significant medical treatment for the person. So if it's routine treatment and you've got no one there, you've got no advanced directives, you've got no uh, medical treatment decision maker and it is routine treatment, then the health professional will make that decision. But if it's significant treatment... It'll have to come to the public advocate to decide that. So why... So the biggie. So we got this new Medical Treatment Act coming in in a few weeks' time. Why did we need a new act? 
The existing Act is pretty outdated in terms of our understanding of human rights. Um, there's been uh, a greater emphasis today on respecting people's autonomy and giving effect to their wishes um, and their views um, rather than making a decision that's in someone's best interests. So it's about tailoring decision-making more to what this particular person wanted rather than some sort of an assessment of, well, we think this is in your best interest, this is what we will do. So it is that push towards personal autonomy, that respect for that human right and for people's individuality. Was there, in, with that in mind, was there a, a specific trigger? Um, like, obviously, there, there was some updating required by the sounds of it, um, but was there an event, a specific trigger that got um, people motivated? Um, the uh, UN Convention on the Rights of Persons with Disabilities was signed in 2006. I think between 2010 and 2012, there was a review of the Guardianship and Administration Act, the Act that we're often appointed under. Um, in That was, I think, concluded in 2012. That had recommendations um, to bring the law more in line with the Human Rights Convention on the Rights of people, Persons with Disability. Do you reckon now... What, what, what comments would you have to say about a respect for autonomy, I guess, is what I'm getting at. I know when I started medicine 20, 30-odd years ago, you know, paternalism clearly ruled the roost. Um, hospitals made lots of decisions, in particular doctors, but all sorts of clinicians, made lots of decisions really without a lot of... It was just considered that the doctor knew best. Mm. And especially in my area, psychiatry and the Mental Health Act, we've gone through this massive change in the last 20 or th- the last few versions of our act where it's really completely geared toward autonomy now. Do you think as a community our respect for autonomy has changed? As a community, it's probably a hard thing to judge. I think people would... Ex- I think we consumers of health um, would expect... We would, I think, our generation and younger, I'm 61... Um, we would probably be more inclined to question and challenge, expect to be fully informed. I think that would true, be true for a large percentage of older people too. But there is, has been, I think, consumers would have said, well, the doctor knows best, I'll just trust. Um, I think there's now a greater pressure on the medical profession and the health professions to make sure that people um, are properly informed um, and that they... they have the information, they understand it, and that they are doing the weighing up of that with some help from their physician. So why don't we get down to the nuts and bolts of the new act? Tell us some of the features. There's a a whole lot of new features and new terms, isn't there, that we need to get familiar with? Yeah, it does formalise the making of advanced care directives, and that's probably the biggest part of it. So you can make two types of advanced care directives. Um, One's an instructional directive, and that means where you consent or you refuse particular treatments and that's binding on the health professional and on you you know if you say i don't want um cpr um then that is what will happen and you will die as a consequence just to clarify though so an advanced care directive is basically a document that you write whilst you're competent and able to make decisions um, about the future. So, for example, if I'm, you know, um, in hospital with, say, uh, a major illness, whatever, cancer, heart disease, trans, whatever, um, and I can 
Um, there's certain things that, you know, are likely or not likely and I can say what I want to happen in the end. Say I've got cancer, I can say, okay, I don't want to be kept alive at all costs. I don't want to go to intensive care. If my heart stops, I don't want CPR and be resuscitated, this, that and the other. I want to go peacefully, whatever. It's those, those sorts of things. That's right. And it's a document you make when you are competent and you have capacity, as you said, and that's very important. If it has to be made while you're competent, how far in advance can you be making these sorts of directives for? So, for example, could I make one now about for when I'm 80? You could make one now for when you're 80, yes. But you would probably want to, you would probably want to review that um, much, very, very often <laughs> and between your current age, which I assume is... Uh, not uh, much over 20, possibly. So I think in the next 60 years, you would probably uh, want to review that very often. A really. bit like a will. So you would update it regularly. Yes, I think so. Especially if there's a change in your circumstances, a change in your health condition. And it, you know, it just doesn't cover doctors. It actually covers a whole range of health professions. Mm. So it covers psychologists, it covers um, Chinese medicine practitioners, it covers ambulance officers, it covers nurses. It is a broad act. That, that just raises an issue for me. If it covers people like ambulance officers, where do you keep this document? So if I'm an ambo and I turn up to your house, mm. how am I going to know that you've got an advanced care directive? Well, if you're still... Um, competent, you can say, I've got an, ads, an advanced care directive. Fair if enough. it's an emergency, then the law is fairly straightforward. The advanced care directive has to be readily available. If it's not readily available, which means if I'm doing an emergency treatment, it's got to be there. Uh, you know, I'm not going to be hunting around for it at all. It's got to be readily available. Um, so Otherwise, I, do, I, you know, I go ahead and provide the, I do my emergency treatment for the mm-hmm. person. We had this Ripper case last year that we discussed on this very show. Um, it was from the newspaper, and I can't remember the full details, but just it, it was fascinating because it was a patient who came into the emergency department in the US with do not resuscitate tattooed, oh. I think it was on their forehead or somewhere obvious, and there was an emergency treatment required and to cut a... Yeah, and it was signed. The tattoo was had a signature tattooed on as well. And to cut a long story short, they did what they didn't know whether to follow it or not. They did the basic stuff to keep the person alive whilst they investigated more. And the next day, the social workers managed to find a hospital that had an advanced care directive, essentially a, a version of one anyway, on record, which pretty much matched it. And so they followed the advanced care directive and then they stopped treatment. It was quite dramatic. Yeah, now this advanced care directive, the instructional form of it, it does actually have to have those words on it, instructional directive. Right. Mm. And it has to be um, witnessed by uh, one of the witnesses has to be a medical practitioner um, and they, the medical practitioner and the other witness have to certify that the person understood you know, each provision of the directive. Yep. So it's something that should be an inf- you know, a very informed document not, and otherwise it's going to be hard for health professionals to, um, you know, feel that that confidence in the document. Um, I've had the opportunity to do a couple of these with some patient, a couple of patients, and it's amazing how powerful it is um, when they feel like they are really in control 
of what's going to happen to them. Some of them obviously are more term, more one was, you know, more terminal than the other. Um, and it, it really is really powerful for both the patient and also for the person who's sort of assisting them in, in coming up with that document because you kind of feel like you're really listening to what the patient wants to happen to them and you're facilitating hopefully that happening when it comes to that time. And I must admit, you know, I think it's really... I'm not I'm not clear on what the difference between the instructional one is and whatever the other one you're about to tell us about is. There's two you said earlier on. Yeah, there's think, a values directive as uh, well. And I think the values directive will be more often used. I think, just going back to the instructional directive, one of the things that's, uh, that's I think, a bit <coughs> crucial there is... The, the physician who's working out the instructional directive or acting on it, it's got to come with a narrative as to why you've reached this point, mm-hmm. as to why you're saying you don't want CPR or in, and in what circumstances. Um, without the narrative, it can be a bit harder to understand or interpret the document. Um, now, it may be very straightforward and clear what you... Uh, want to happen and therefore if it's very clear it has to be done but because circumstances are so much more complex than you can imagine when you're writing a document that um, it's really helpful I think to know the narrative behind it so that's what's the benefit I think of doing it uh, with your GP um, is that the GP will often know some of your narrative and and that lends a credibility to the document and to what you're doing and I think an authenticity to it. So the value statement, what's the value statement? Value statement is you cast it in various ways. I think people will often cast it in terms of the outcome that they think is acceptable when they've had medical treatment. So if they think that the outcome for them is going to be uh, that they might be in what used to be called, I think, a sort of vegetative state, then they might say, well, I don't want any sort of treatment that would lead to that sort of outcome. If I can't communicate and meaningfully with my friends and family, then I don't want the treatment that would keep me alive in those circumstances. So I think a values directive will often be outcome-focused, um, where it might be that you say... Um, the outcome I want is to make sure that I'm kept, um, that I will have treatments that will really enable me to, um, and you probably think of this better as doctors, that, that will keep me able to communicate with my friends for as long as possible um, when I'm in the terminal phase of my illness, for instance, uh, that that would be important to you. So you get to know what these person's values are. Then that's really done for your medical treatment decision maker. The medical treatment decision maker that's looks That's another at that. new term, medical treatment decision maker. Exactly right. Yep. We don't have them under the current act, do we? We have people appointed as medical power of attorney. How is this different? It is a different appointment, but if you have appointed a, a medical power of attorney, that person becomes your medical treatment decision maker. Okay. So this is a person who understands your values, your statements, and can make decisions for you in the abs- when you can't? When a medical treatment decision maker is consenting or refusing treatment, they have to consider your value statement. Right. There's no choice about it. They yep. have to as one of their obligations. What about if we get it wrong? What about if I read this document and it's a value statement and uh, there's some instructional things 
And, uh, you know, it's well known that I'm a little bit of a buffoon and I read it slightly wrongly. Now, I shouldn't joke about it because it's serious, but what if we get it wrong? What happens? Are there consequences? Yes, there are. Um, if, but not if you've acted in good faith. Right. Okay. And you've, you've, you've followed the proper processes. Yep. Um, there aren't consequences in terms of legal consequences. If you've acted completely negligently and probably possibly with a degree of almost criminal negligence in the way you've carried out the... the, the then, you know, there will be consequences for you. I can't remember in terms of the offences under the Act, um, but there are offences under the Act um, if you behave in a way which is reprehensible. By the way, just a quick question, because people might be looking this up. Why is it called the Medical Treatment Act of 2016? Is it just taken two years from the time of it being written? Because I tried to look it up and I'm thinking, oh, that's obviously the old one, 2016. But this new Act is 2016, isn't it? Yes, it's actually the Medical Treatment Planning and Decisions Act, because uh-huh. it is about planning yep. the advanced care directives. It's also about decisions. So who's making decisions? Um, what can you tell us about the, um, the drafting of the Act itself and the consultation process in particular? Obviously, the medical profession and obviously um, representatives of patients and so on were, were, were talked to. Were, um, were medical insurance companies uh, spoken to? I wouldn't know. I wouldn't know whether they were cons- consulted about it. I imagine, from the legal perspective, that that's where a lot of the um, potential uh, for dispute would would emerge. Would that be right? So, the interests of the patient different to the interests of, um, you know, say members of the family who are taking a particular view different to perhaps what the patient had intended, and that they want to challenge the treatment and they want to use legal mechanisms to challenge the the treatment. Would that would that be a scenario that the Act is trying to um, uh, pre- uh, preempt? Yes, uh, it is. Uh, if you know that you're in conflict with your family and about what you want for your treatment, then you would be very much in a stronger position to make an advanced care directive to make it clear to your family um, and to the medical profession mm. what exactly you want. So it does... Uh, facilitate that um, indeed so tell us I want to go through one more scenario because I think we've got the advanced care directives covered the medical decision maker so what happens now if I turn up to the emergency department unconscious car crash say I turn up car crash um, you know head injury or whatever unconscious and I need some surgery what do the clinicians in the emergency department do under this new act well I imagine if they if it's not an emergency yep so we've passed, they've received the emergency yep. treatment and there was no instructional directive available, then they have their first obligation is to see if there is uh, an instructional directive or a, um, a values directive or, no, sorry, or a medical treatment decision maker. So that's their first legal obligation. Okay, um, so they do like, they ring the relatives, they look on the patient's file, they maybe check their, um, what's that health record we have, the national one? I've forgotten what yeah, it's called yeah. now. Oh, sorry, the um, electronic health records, oh, which yeah. are not yep. sort of very well organised yet. Just yet? Yes. Okay, so they check all those places yep. or, you know, someone does what, yeah, in the acute. Then, and say there's a decision made, you know, look, we have to decide whether to amputate Steve's leg tomorrow. Then what happens? And I'm still unconscious. Okay. And if you haven't got an instructional directive, yep. 
And you haven't got a medical treatment decision maker. It is significant treatment. Mm -hmm. So therefore, you would have to go to the public advocate and seek consent for that treatment. Right. Is is there going to be going forward a sort of a a way of getting all these directives so that they are accessible uh, online through, I don't know, some legal department that makes it easier for um, people in that position in an emergency department just to sort of log into someone's personal file and find that directive or is that not possible? I think hospitals are working on that. I don't know how well hospitals, you know, have information across the hospitals. So badly. I guess if they do Relatively don't, badly yes. is the bottom yeah. line. So okay. it needs to be taken out of the out of the medical sort of... Um, well, I think that's why the probably the... Um, what is it? The electronic health, health record. record. Yeah, yeah. yeah. My yeah. electronic health record. That's the obvious place to put it, isn't it? And, yeah. as, and, you know, hopefully that gets better and we all got used to using it. I think that is probably the better thing. We, we would be saying to people who make advanced care directives is... It's not much good hiding your light under a bushel. You've got to get out and tell people mm. that your, your GP should know, your family members should know, where are you likely to end up in a hospital? They should know. Um, so that, you know, it's not hidden. Mm. If you're going to have people rely on it, people have to know about it. So there will be an encouragement of people to, to get that information out. Mm. Mm-hmm. Okay, so um, probably the I, I think the final thing to cover is where can people find out more? What's, what's the plan for people finding out more? This is all going to hit and we're going to have to change. Obviously, we can always ring the Office of the Public Advocate. What else should people be doing to prepare themselves? Is there a good website or somewhere we can look up? The, um, the Department of Health has a website. Um, if you go in onto their website, they have got some information there. In fact, they've got a very... You know, for the health practitioners, particularly, they have a, a very good uh, guide, which I was reading just this morning, and um, they also have they will have further documents in relation to that. Though uh, the Office of the Public Advocate website will have a part devoted to this. We have uh, just going to the printers at the moment is a book called Take Control, which was our book about appointing powers of attorney. It will also have in that. Um, the instructional directive and the values directive and the appointment of a medical treatment decision maker. So that's so that's for patients, consumers. Yes, that's right. Mm-hmm. And you'll be able to get um, download that from our website. Um, this starts on the twelfth of March, which is a public holiday. It's Labor Day in Victoria, and so that's a bit complicated. So, but the advance. Oh, sorry, take control will be available. You can get that through Legal Aid and through ourselves. It's a free publication. Oh, good. So, and often health services also retain copies of that so that it's available for people because people (coughs) think about this when they're actually at their GP um, or their their hospital or clinic. That's where they're likely to... Mm. to Well, I, for one... Love these new acts. I know they drive a lot of people nuts because it's, you know, it's not what we're used to as clinicians, the law, but it's just so important, increasingly important for everyone to understand these sorts of issues. So I'm, I'm very excited to find out more and I much, very much appreciate you coming in this morning to mm. explain it all to us, Phil. Phil Grano from the Office of the Public Advocate. Thank, Thank you, you very, very much. much. Thank you. Hey, before we go to a break, I'm going to do a quick little, what is this? Oh, it's a prize. It's a prize. I've picked up a prize. Get ready, everyone. Fingers ready. At the phone. Okay. The Wheeler Centre presents, oh, goodness, I hate it when I don't pre-read these, Corey Doctorow. Is that how I pronounce it? Corey Doctorow. 
Dr. Oz. 7pm <laughs> oh. Tuesday, February the 27th. Shh, everyone. February the 27th, at St Kilda Town Hall. I know I'm an idiot. Dr. O presents author C.S. Paquette for an expansive conversation about the imperfect present and the foreseeable future. Walkaway, the latest book from Canadian science fiction writer Cory Doctorow, explores an alarmingly plausible post-scarcity near future where all labour is automated and human beings are either super rich, like Dr... Um, uh, Capri over there, or surplus, like myself, unneeded. Um, panel leader, you've, yes. you've been reflecting, you've been thinking, you've been cogitating. <laughs> yeah, I have, and it's been painful. Um, yeah, the, so we had another shooting in Florida um, that's obviously been uh, in the news and, and in people's minds. And something, I don't know if you agree, but it feels a little bit different this time around in the way that people have responded to it. So from a reportage point of view... Um, I would agree. Yeah. It seems like it's one or two scenarios. Either it's immediately labelled terrorism or a security issue or something like that, or it's um, increasingly, um, in events like this one, um, labelled a, a mental health issue. Mm. Um, the only thing I'd say that, you know, I've, I've, the ment- well, I'm, I'm sensitive to it. The mental Blaming things on mental health has been, you know, a... Uh, popular approach from all, you know, not just the media, yeah, the public yeah, politicians the for decades and, and decades yeah. and decades. And it sort of dried up a little bit in the 90s and noughts because there was such a huge backlash from, in particular, advocacy groups for mental health and clinicians in mental health to say, stop blaming mentally ill people. Yeah. It's stigmatising. A, it's stigmatising and B, it ain't true. Yeah, yeah, and clearly, and, and so that's where I'm, I'm going with these thoughts, you know, that there seems to be some really significant problems with treating it as a mental health issue. Um, and that's notwithstanding the fact that almost by definition, it's axiomatic that if you're inclined to pick up a gun and go and shoot kids, uh, let alone anyone else, there's prob- you're probably not, you know, entirely together. Um, in your in your mental well-being, um, but that doesn't mean, therefore, that we can jump and say that's all mental health or or what have you. Trump, for example, for his bit, has come out mm. and um, you know obviously he's not talking about it as a gun control issue. He's he's decided to go down the mental health path, and this has brought to the surface uh, some conversations about um, the issues with that. First of all, his some of his language. He's all, he's using words like demented. And mm. and, oh. and and this kind of language in his tweets and mm. and what have you, um, which is not very helpful. Um, but it's also there's a sense of victim blaming a little bit here. So he was talking about you know if um, if unless unless the school was reporting yeah. um, that there's this person about the place um, that is presenting a risk, then you've kind of ultimately only got yourself to blame because you could have had, you had the opportunity to report yeah, him as a, as a threat. People know, yes. yeah, mm. yeah. Um, so that creates the layers. Um, there's also um, the the one that one of the ones that concerns me is this obfuscation of culture of of the gun culture. So when we're talking about mental health as an explanation for events like this, um, we're isolating the individual. Um, and of, well, certainly from my perspective, um, isolating individuals from societies, from politics, um, is 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 a really is bad news. Panel Peter is a political sociologist. <laughs> for those of you out there who don't know, um, and um, and I I can't but think, even if it is mental health, I can't help but think that this is a product. Uh, this is a social product. This event is a social product. Yeah, you know, it's interesting you should raise it. I, I, it's, I think there has been a lot better conversations this time too, no doubt because the um, school children involved mm. have spoken so eloquently in so many big venues. But 
Um, and the mental health issue, I think we can still knock on the head. Look, can we knock that on the head pretty quickly? Mm. People with mental illness generally aren't at greater risk of committing violent acts than others. People with disorders that involve a psychosis are at a slightly increased risk, but they're way more likely to be the victims of violence than to be perpetrators. And the big, big, big risk factors for violence that outshine our mental illness by a fact- factors of about 100 are being male, being a young adult, having a troubled childhood and having problems with drugs or alcohol, uh, drugs or especially alcohol. Mm. They're the big factors. They take into account like, you know, 99.9, you know, so to... to ref- and the, the issues we face with mental illness all the time, I'm a shrink while we're outing ourselves, <laughs> um, the issues we face with mental illness is that a lot of the terms that people use like unbalanced and when Donald Trump says demented, they don't mean people with mental illness. They mean people who are odd or weird in some way. And that's different. I know it's subtle, but it's different. These aren't people with mental illnesses. Well, and the sociologist in me goes, that's about deviance. Yes. Right? And I what's agree. normal behaviour and what's deviant behaviour. And obviously there's a lot of um, psychology and psychiatry um, around that, but there's also a lot of sociology around the nature of deviance as well. So that becomes a complicating factor in the definition of, of mental illness. So I, I went and looked at the stats uh, for the United States and if we just simply accepted this without further investigation that mental illness is a cause or an explanation, then we're, we're now capturing um, uh, 44.7 million people in the United States would, by the generic definition of mental illness, um, be classified as a risk. At right now, see, because normally too when they talk about gun laws and they talk about excluding people with mental illness, mm. it's any history of mental illness. Now, yeah. currently... On current definitions, and they're very loose definitions, Mm. 50% of the population have experienced mental illness at some stage in their life. Mm. And that's, so it's, and some people would say it's even higher depending on how you define it. And so that's, so it's not a useful, it's not a useful, what's the word, rubric concept. Yeah, rubric, yeah. yeah. And and as you said, it just takes away from the, what is the primary issue here, which is the gun laws. (laughs) And, And, you know, you can't predict, let's say, you know, all these people with mental illness are the ones who are going to be, you know, shooting people up. How can you predict which one when? Clearly, you need to get rid of the gun. (laughs) Like, I mean, I'm obviously quite biased. but, But... it's not a it's not an effective way of dealing with the problem because you know as you say there are so many people who'd fit into that supposed risk group. What do you do? That's what, right. what is what what effective things can you put into place to reduce the risk of those people? You know, and if we if we say the risk factors are being male, being you know whatever those other male, ones you young, said. troubled childhood, and drug or alcohol problems, they're yeah. the biggest by a long shot. Panel beater, do you reckon gun laws do actually would actually solve the problem? I, I can't see why not. The only discomfort I have around it is, is I guess there's a little bit of a libertarian in me, um, you know, and I think um, there's some aspects. I'm very surprised. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's some aspects there and, I, you know, you get confronted with, you know, well, we know that, you know, banning um, uh, drugs or mm. making drugs illegal, that doesn't remove the possibility of access. So, but we'd then go with the logic, well, you just want to increase the number of barriers to access um, and gun controls, is, it, is that a... Um, uh, is that something comparable um, to drug control? It's been interesting because I think the um, debate around gun control has got more sophisticated this time too. I've seen some really impressive mm. stuff written, especially in the conversation and on some of the um, cleverer news programs on places like ABC, you know, 
showing that, like, for example, mass shootings are only a tiny proportion of gun deaths. The biggest proportion of gun deaths by a long shot is mm. suicides mm. by a long shot. Mm. Um, then deaths of other people. There's not killing other people. Um, a lot of them, of course, are held by people with illegal firearms. And so the relationship between legal firearms and gun deaths wasn't nearly as strong as I thought prior to oh, this right. mass shooting, mm-hmm. having read about it in a little bit more detail. And I've seen a lot of quite you know, very reasonable public commentators saying, look, you know what, There's the shout is always more gun laws, but we don't actually know which gun laws, how to implement them. And a lot of people are saying, just get the gun laws we've got in place working yep. and remove some of the obvious little um, things, like, for example, no gun checks if you buy your gun at a fair or something. Well, um, you know, and they're saying... You know, the, it's not actually the gun laws, it's the, the way the current gun laws are administered. And and in particular, the, the nature of the guns themselves. Like, so yes. this Florida shooting was an AK-15, I mean, which really as a weapon has no other use than to, you know... Kill people Kill people. Mass. Yeah, you don't go rabbit shooting with an AK-15. There's just uh, one more point that I think um, is relevant here to consider when we're wondering whether to label this mental health and what the implications might be. Um, and that's um, to think of, say, this recent Florida shooting um, in compare contrast with an event of a few years ago, 2011 in Norway, when mm. Andres Brevik uh, took uh, the lives of 77 people. Mm. Yes. And um, there's some interesting things about this. First of all, obviously, it's a labelling issue. Was that terrorism or was that um, mental health issues? That was or politically motivated, wasn't it? Right, but this is where the complication and um, where I started reflecting or remembering um, that event. At the time, there was really heavy-duty legal debate about whether to trial him as somebody who was mentally ill or to put him on trial as a terrorist. Hmm. So in Brevik's own testimony, he said that his motivations were to protect Europe from Islam and uh, he wrote a manifesto and and everything. So Hmm. uh, prima facie, there's a lot of stuff that would point us towards terrorism. On the other hand, he was diagnosed with, and I wrote it down, um, he was diagnosed with narcissistic decompression syndrome. Never heard of that, but any (laughs) of those things are personality related and the link between... And when we say personality, we don't really mean mental disorder, but that's a whole can of sure. worms and we've only got 25 seconds left, so we're not going to do it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, we can pick up on that at another stage, though, but thank you for bringing along that topic, Panel Beta. Mm-hmm. It is an important topic, and I think the more everyone in the world thinks about it, the better. Um, hey, and also thanks to the rest of the team, Capri and Trainer Wheels, for coming along this morning, our no, first show back to the trouble. year. Thanks for having us. Don't forget, listeners, our Facebook page, Radio Therapy at Triple R. We have all our updates, plus all sorts of other news and views for you to listen to. Thank you. This has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.